Welcome to Talking Sock, I'm your host Pete Davidson. I'm coming to you today from the unceded lands of the Rwandri people of the Kulin Nation, and I'd like to acknowledge and pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Marilyn Agrello, director of the new documentary Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, which will release in theatres in Australia and by direct download on February 2nd. My interview with Marilyn was simply profound. I have never spoken to a director who has not only worked on Sesame Street, but has had the job of archiving 20 years of its beginnings. The film is a deeply moving insight into the lives of a band of geniuses working at a pivotal moment in history where television was the new frontier and its commercial impact on children was finally being questioned. The foundation for what became the Children's Television Workshop were laid, pioneered by Joan Gans Cooney, director John Stone and Jim Henson. The workshop embarked on a project to make children's television educational. Here's a short clip from the film. So we hired Joan to do a feasibility study. Television is a reality to young children, maybe the reality, and certainly one of the most interesting things to them in their lives. A child between the ages of three and five watches television one half of his waking time. The only thing that exceeds television sleep. Joan had a brilliantly simple notion. Children were watching a tremendous amount of television. If they're going to watch that much television, why not, one, find out what it is they like to watch, two, find out what would be good for them to watch, and then you put the two together, and that's the show. We were talking about 130 hours of television a year. And so an initial budget was put together. Budget of $8 million. It was uh, a lot of money. So bulk of the original budget was provided through the Office of Education, the federal government. Someone said it won't be taken seriously if a woman heads it. But that problem is they didn't have a project without me. Much of it was in my head, which I pointed out to them. And when the New York Times reported on it, they said she'll be one of the most powerful women in television. It's no question that Sesame Street, syndicated in over 150 countries with 30 versions and a staggering 93 Emmy Awards across its 50-odd years, has become a cornerstone of modern childhood. Here's my interview with Marilyn.
Marilyn, hi there. It's an honor to have you on our show. And thank you so much for speaking today on this crazy bus schedule timetable. I'm going to jump straight into it, if that's okay with you, because we do have limited time. So I wanted to ask, you know, you yourself have been a Sesame Street director since season 48. And so as a director, first and foremost, of Sesame Street, can I ask you what that's like? Oh, my God. The first time I walked into the set to direct actual Muppets was... It was unbelievable to see everything that's going on underneath what you actually see on the monitors and to see how they work and how they're looking down the puppeteers. They're seeing everything backwards and they're looking down and they're (laughs) actually planning their moves around each other. It's astounding on so many levels. And to be there directing them, I have done it now quite a few times. I just did something with Elmo just about two weeks ago. And it's amazing every time to work with them, I have to say. One thing that we do on this podcast is we actually ask the first question, which is why puppets? And I'm going to ask you the same question, if that's okay, because this is a puppetry podcast. We get right into the nitty gritty of it. So what for you do puppets do? Why puppets, Marilyn? Puppets are fantastic because they're very, they're like animals in a way. They are, I don't have to look at your face and think, is he being deceptive or should I try to trick him? A puppet is very honest somehow. I never worked with puppets until I actually directed, uh, as I told you that video, and I was astounded by how alive they are when they're being puppeteered. They're alive, but they're also really honest. I think I don't know. I'm a fan. I have to say (laughs) puppets are very important. I wish I had a puppet of me. Oh, a portrait puppet. Well, that can be, there are people around you that will know how to make that, I think. (laughs) Can I ask what your favorite moment of working on that show has been so far? Can you pick one? Maybe, maybe the first thing I ever did, which was a music video with Ernie, I don't want to live on the moon. I mean, it was my first time and we had a lot of green screen effects and these young ladies who were on a TV show, their names will come to me. They were singing and tossing props in the air and there were people in green catching the props they were tossing. It was just, it was just so fanciful and beautiful. Wow, that's incredible. We're here today to promote the theatrical release of the new documentary Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, which will drop on February 2nd. Now, as a director of Sesame Street, I would really like to ask you, you're no stranger to documentary, but what's it like going from directing Sesame Street to then switching gears and trying to encapsulate the tone of Sesame Street's first 20 years in just a few hours? Can you walk us through that process? Yes, Uh, the most helpful thing for me was to completely separate the two. And when I direct segments for Sesame Street, a director on Sesame Street typically doesn't direct a a whole episode, but rather segments. Gotcha. And it'll be a Muppet segment or something, two or three minute pieces that fit together modually to create the show, Mm -hmm. which is fantastic. And to then take on the task of telling the story of the origins of Sesame Street, it was frankly very, very useful to just separate the two completely. 
to me, that story is a story about Sesame Street, but it's really a story about this little group of geniuses that banded <laughs> together, you know, at a very, very special moment in time in the U.S. when all this turmoil was in the air and there were protests in the streets and the Vietnam War was happening and the civil rights movement. And they said, we're going to make a change. We're going to make a change and we're going to reach black and brown kids and we're going to give them, try to give them the same shot at getting an education as white kids get. Mm -hmm. And they made all these observations about television and what kids like to watch on TV and what sticks to them. And they realized what sticks are commercial jingles, these little songs. I still remember from my childhood, all those commercials that were on, I can sing <laughs> you all those songs. And once they made that realization, they started to craft what would become these segments that they were going to create for this fledgling show. And of course, the most important step was, and the most fortuitous step that they took was to bring in Jim Henson and Jim Henson's Muppets that changed the game so dramatically and brought such magic to this project. I mean, to this day, we're still talking about the Muppets as though they're, I don't know, Fresh. magical beings that have, yeah, they have affected all our lives. We love them so much. It's really quite something. So for me, it was uh, a story about that, a story about this group of people and what they brought to the table, how they changed the world and how they changed our lives. Absolutely. And you're, you're touching there on something that I wanted to ask you about, which was what struck me was how the film really takes audiences through quite a heartfelt and emotional journey. And we linger on the creatives and the challenges of the show, the hours that they put in, the sacrifices their families made because of those hours. We linger on the death of Will Lee, who played Mr. Hooper. We have these beautiful songs with interviews with Carol Spinney and Joe Raposo. How did you capture the show's emotional centre and construct that depth? Because I think that's an amazing skill. And to a show that so many people would think is such a lighthearted thing, you know, you've really brought the, the humanity to that show. And, and it's a really a show for adults. Yes, thank you so much for making all those observations because you have hit on exactly what my goal was in making this film. You know, if we wanted to enjoy those first few decades of Sesame Street, which are so delicious. And so the humor is so fantastic. We can go to YouTube and look for classic episodes and we can find quite a lot of the amazing humor of the Muppets and all of that. But what I wanted to do with this film was really reveal all of this stuff that we don't know about Sesame Street. None of us, the producers, Trevor Crafts, who optioned the book and hired me to direct this film, he was a super fan since early, early childhood. And he had never heard of John Stone, for example. And when you talk about the emotional core of the film, that's John Stone. Yeah. And the decision was made very early on to craft the film around three main characters. Joan Gans Cooney, who was this wonderful young documentary producer in the 60s, which was very rare in television, who 
got this idea and got this idea to use uh, the methods of advertising to teach. Sesame Street was really her creation. Joan Gans Cooney, John Stone, the amazing John Stone, who came in as the first director, producer, writer, and John conceived of so many things. The, the idea to not make Sesame Street look like a little fairy wonderland or a little circus tent or something, the way all kids shows were. He made it look like a street in Harlem. Yeah. He wanted it to look like the kids he wanted to reach. And finally, of course, Jim Henson, who brought the Muppets and the magic. And so in that way, it gave it some structure. And then the decision, the second big decision was to limit the scope of the story to just the first 20 years, really. It that must have been brutal. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. But, you know, these were the most experimental years. These were the years when they were just figuring it out, throwing stuff against the wall to see if it would work, figuring out who these characters are, these Muppets, when they were kind of going crazy and making something so deliciously out there that no one had ever seen before. So with those limitations, it allowed such a massive story to at least have a structure to be told. I really did want to go into the adult thing about these people were making something for children many times at the expense of their own children. Hmm. They would leave the house. They wouldn't come home for days. You know, Jim Henson's son, Brian says, my father would go to work and we'd see him again in four days. I just thought that's what all fathers did. You know, Joe Raposa would be in the recording studio till four in the morning. This is what they did. So it's very ironic that they were making something for kids when their own families, in many cases, suffered. Here's a short segment from the film in which Joe Raposo discusses one of the most famous and iconic songs from Sesame Street. It was 1970, in the middle of the first taping season, that John Stone came to me and he said, you know, we got this character, this Kermit the Frog. And John said to me, what, what does Kermit think about when he's alone? Does he ever have a quiet moment? Why would you think about doing a song that's quiet for him? I was at my desk, and I was thinking about the frog and about the swamp and the log and what his life was like alone and what did he actually think of himself. And I mean like a shot. I mean without thinking twice. I put my hands down on a B-flat chord. This whole song just unfolded by itself. It's not that easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves When I think it could be nicer being red or yellow or gold Something much more colorful like that. It's not easy being green. Seems you blend in with so many other ordinary things. And people tend to pass you over. Because you're, you're not, not standing, standing out like flashy sparkles in the water or stars in the sky. It's not easy being green with Kermit the Frog. But green's the color of spring. So many things in this one song. I mean, this is a profound song. 
and green could be big like an ocean or important like a mountain or tall like a tree. And I remember thinking, are they singing about what I think they're singing about? Of course they were singing about race. But they were also singing about being down in the dumps because you're a little green frog. Some kids just thought it was about a little green puppet, and other kids thought about maybe it was something else. Hey, you know something? I'm tired now. I think I'm going to go on a coffee break. Would you do me a favor? Answer the telephone for me. And if they don't speak English, you know, diles en español. It was very difficult at that time to find meaningful work as Latino actors, you know. I don't remember ever reading for any kind of a positive character. The only roles that I could find were gang members or drug addicts. I realized I had gotten a role on television that was the role of a Latino, Mexican-American, who was like a regular person. Hey, Mac. You got, you got a mango. He was part of the neighborhood. He had his own business. Maria. I gotta go out for a few minutes. It was a role that hadn't been shown before. And now you think about what legacy that has held. It really was a sacrifice for the sake of millions and millions of children over generations. It is something. It really is. Can I ask you, what was your favorite interview? Because you interviewed a lot of the guests and features uh, yourself. Who was your favorite interview in that project? That is such an interesting question. Um, Okay, I'm going to choose Chris Surf. Oh, my God. Amazing. He, Chris was... He wrote songs. He wrote a lot of uh, parody songs that sound just like real songs that are out there in the world, but with different lyrics. He wrote comedy. He He's such a delightful person. Here's a guy that's, I guess, Chris is about 80 years old, and he has the spirit of a 25-year-old. <laughs> he is so full of energy and so funny. And when he sat at the piano and played Letter B, I mean, that was the most delightful thing I've ever done in an interview, honestly. <laughs> um, I would like to ask you as well, I appreciate as a puppeteer what you've mentioned before about all the behind the scenes footage, which really shows audiences what a set built for puppets and puppeteers looks like. And the dynamic of working on a show like Sesame Street, what that was to be between uh, Frank Oz and Jim Henson when they did Burton Ernie, you know, that, that joy and that experimentation. But when I think about the task of combing through all that archival footage, even in that first 20 years, that's still 20 years of footage, the mind boggles. Just how did you really edit this down and get it to this incredible message that you portrayed here? Not easily. Um, as you can imagine, just the footage from the show itself was so much. And how mm. do you choose between this Bert and Ernie moment and that one? Impossible. I mean, amazing to get paid to sit and watch this stuff. <laughs> one thing that happened is early on, someone told me, you need to find a guy named Victor DiNapoli. Victor DiNapoli had been a crew member on Sesame Street in the late 70s and early 80s. And Victor, I believe, was an art director. And he wanted to make a documentary about the behind the scenes of Sesame Street. And Victor shot... I like 15 hours of beautiful 16 millimeter footage and it's really intimate stuff like 
uh, Jim Henson and Frank Oz trying to work out jokes together. And you see them rehearsing and eating and laughing together. Very, very behind the scenes stuff. You see all the other great puppeteers, Jerry Nelson. I mean, incredible stuff. And everyone that he captured on camera was so at ease because Victor was part of the crew. So it was all so familiar and easy. And he interviewed Jim Henson, all of the interview footage, virtually all of it of John Stone is from Victor's footage. So all of that footage became available to us, which was like, as you can imagine. Goldmine. Yeah. Absolutely. Here's Chris Surf and cameraman Frank Biondo talking about being on the set of Sesame Street and featuring some of Victor DiNapoli's footage. One of the great things about being part of Sesame was seeing what happened when a take went wrong. I have paint on my nose. Yes, right. Okay. <laughs> Is that better? No! You're <laughs> <laughs> permanently scarred for life! The puppeteers would just keep going and they would do all the things that we could never possibly do on television. Oh, see. Say, Frog, have you ever wondered what it would like to be feel? <laughs> Jim Henson, Frank Oz, they were very professional. And if they were serious and Jim maybe had to go somewhere to get out, then it was serious, <laughs> you know? But if they were on kidding around... Oh, hello there! Greetings, Froggy Baby! You had a good day. Sweet they were hysterical. Honey. Go away, Grover. Whatever it is, we do not want any. I really think it's interesting to ask you because this show and this film have already been in the world, in the zeitgeist, in America and abroad for so long. And actually, Australia is its last stop. So what is the response being thus far to the documentary? That's very interesting. You know, I was very nervous about what the response would be. I love this film, but I also know that this is something that's so personal for people. People carry this in their heart. How in the world will we satisfy everyone? Because everyone's going to want their own piece of Sesame Street to be portrayed. So it was very nerve wracking, but it's been received really well, I have to say. (laughs) I think it has tapped into something that people have held inside for so many years. This really is a movie for adults and it's really for adults that carry Sesame Street inside of them. And all of those people have really responded in a fantastic way. I could not be happier with the response this film has gotten. It is. It's for those of us who watched it as kids and were that generation, I think, absolutely. Uh, Can I ask you, what kind of legacy do you think Sesame Street has upheld to this day? When Sesame Street started, one of the things we talk about in this film is that before Sesame Street came on the air, there had never been a mixed race cast on television. Never, which is hard to believe. This came to us in a show for three and four-year-olds, something that radical. And when it first happened, a lot of people were very surprised to see Black people and white people living in the same building and Hispanics and monsters and Muppets, of course, (laughs) all together. But this was a little shocking. And in the South, specifically in Mississippi, there was an outcry 
And yeah. it became national news that Mississippi public station took it off the air and they were called on it. And we have some very rare footage about the head of that TV station being confronted by a reporter about why. In the end, the public outcry was in the other direction and they were forced to to put Sesame Street back on. I mean, Sesame Street was a force that you could not fight against. It was too big. <laughs> Everyone loved sure it. Was. So in that vein, I think that the legacy of Sesame Street is one that continues to kind of reflect what the world is. For instance, just about a month ago, Big Bird was on a public service announcement on television or on the internet, I think, talking about vaccinations and how important vaccinations are. And certain people in the United States government got upset with that <laughs> and said that Big Bird, why is Sesame Street and why is Big Bird sticking his nose into propaganda? And the truth of it is, this is what Sesame Street has always done. They've always looked at the world that we're living in and tried to make it a better place and talked about that. Back in the 60s, it was about race, and then it became other things. You know, another thing that happened through the years is, I think it was in 1993 or 1995, the government was cutting back costs, and they decided they would cut funding to public education, and that would have cut Sesame Street off the air. So what happened? They sent Big Bird to Congress. <laughs> And Big Bird was walking through the halls of Congress and senators and congressmen were fleeing because no one wanted to be caught by a photographer in a photograph with Big Bird with the caption, this man is taking away Sesame Street. And it worked. They completely backtracked and the funding for public television was not cut. So that's a very funny story, but it just shows you the power of the power of this show. What senator is going to go home and face their child when <laughs> they're being blamed? <laughs> you know, so I think just the spirit of what Sesame Street was founded on, which was to be a force for good without sounding, I don't want to sound preachy about it or anything, but it's been a very, very powerful force and continues to this day. So um, Marilyn, I got last question, you know, this is being dropped on, on February 2nd. What can Australian audiences expect from Street Gang, how we got to Sesame Street? First of all, I'm so delighted and excited that it's going to be in Australia. I only wish I could be there too. Why is this pandemic happening now? But I hope that people see this film and are moved by it. I hope they learn something they did not know. My aim was to make a film about a subject that everyone thinks they know very well and surprise them with all that they didn't know. And I also want people to understand or to reflect on the fact that, look at how creativity and art can change the world. It, it just can. And, you know, through these people that started Sesame Street, through very low tech things, these little puppets made out of cloth, their little animations and their little songs, they kind of changed the world. And I think right now the world can use a little changing again. So maybe it's a good time to, to be reminded of that. It sure is. Here's the trailer for Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street.
What do you think makes Sesame Street so appealing to kids? Sesame Street is immortal. Sunny day, sleeping You know, there were a lot of shows that really talked down to kids. This was an experiment. We were trying new things. It had to be entertaining and it was going to teach at the same time. But I don't think any of us sat there thinking, oh my God, we're changing the world. Our target audience were inner city children. I wanted a realistic set. It's a real street in a real neighborhood. They had ideas and concepts and behaviors that were just off the wall, and they were allowed to do it. And the Muppets are unquestionably the stars of the show. How many lines do you have? Three. Three. <laughs> well, try to get the first one better. I had become intellectually and spiritually involved with the civil rights movement. Those were revolutionary times. Because of the diversity of the cast that was unheard of. It still is very difficult for me to wrap my mind around how big it became. Beautiful children will grow up. Right on. To be on the set watching this dynamic, it was magic. It was people dedicated to a real ideal and having the will to do it. It was just a magic moment in time where we all worked on an idea that we understood was bigger than ourselves. I'm leaving. I love you. I love you too. Okay. Marilyn, it has been a profound experience talking with you. Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street will be in select cinemas and on digital download from the 2nd of February in Australia. Marilyn, thank you so much for talking sock with us today. It has been my pleasure to have you on the show. It has been my pleasure also. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each episode, we post a series of stories and questions related to our guests. Follow us on Instagram at One Orange Sock Productions or subscribe to us on YouTube at One Orange Sock. You can also find our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. This episode is produced with the support of Unima Oz, the National Association for Puppetry Arts in Australia. Our title music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Barnier. Without them, this podcast could not be possible. Special thanks go to Carly Cadigan, Kei and Nixco for making this episode a reality. Stay tuned. We'll be back soon with another great episode of Talking Socks.